0: The New Testament reading is taken from Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray again together. God, our Father, once again, we give you thanks for your most holy word. We recognize our dependence upon you as our teacher. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would now inspire our hearts and lead us into the truth that sets us free. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to take two weeks to unpack this passage one week today to look at one thing, and then next week to look at another, including the profound, uh, the profound, uh, stereotype that Paul, um, says about the Cretans and the manner in which the scripture proves itself to be anything but politically correct. Um, so there's a lot here to look at. But today I want to, to focus, um, to home in on one thing, and, uh, the apostle Paul begins our passage today by referring to the extent of the problem that Titus faced. Not only was there opposition in Crete, but the antagonists, Paul says in our text today, were many. It wasn't just one or two insubordinate men, which is enough. There were many insubordinate men that uh, Titus and his men were going to face. And it would be easier for Titus if these men were clear, just clearly pagan adversaries, but that's not the case. Paul says that these antagonists are of the circumcision party. They are those who claim to be Christians and have taken upon themselves the role of a teacher, even though they've not been appointed either by Paul or by Titus. And we know that they've appointed themselves as teachers in the church because Paul says in verse 11 that they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That is, they've set themselves up as paid teachers. Now, it's not shameful to gain from the gospel. In fact, writing to Timothy, Paul says, you know, in in, um, just a, a couple books before, that it's the duty of the church to pay their ministers. Let the elders, he says, who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Let the laborer receive his wages, which he deserves. Why does the church pay its pastor? Because it's been commanded to do so. But here in Titus, the monetary gain is shameful. And there are reasons for this shamefulness. First of all, because these teachers are self-appointed. They've not been selected by Paul, and they've not been selected by Titus, and they've refused, as as we've seen, to place themselves under the proper pastoral authority. Once again, Paul says they are insubordinate, a term he uses twice. They are unruly. And as such, they are divisive. These people stir up division in the church. These are the kinds of people, says Paul, at the close of chapter 3, looking ahead just a little bit, that if they refuse to change, if they refuse to hear the warnings of the church, Paul says plainly, we should have nothing to do with them whatsoever. That's how serious division is in the church. That's how serious the apostle uh, sees it. A little leaven... Leavens the whole lump. So Paul says, get rid of the leaven. So first of all, these are self-appointed and divisive people, and therefore it's shameful. But secondly, they're teaching things that they ought not teach. They are not approved workmen. They are not rightly and skillfully dividing the word of truth. They've got bad theology. And so Paul, you notice, calls them empty talkers, And he calls them deceivers in verse 10. And therefore the profit that they receive from their teaching ministry is shameful. Now the pastors that Paul through Titus is going to send into the midst of these uh, these churches, he's sending them out in the midst of these wolves. (laughs) And there are many of them, Paul says. What a daunting challenge this is. Not only for the pastors to deal with the genuine spiritual problems of the submissive sheep, but to deal with so many who are insubordinate in the churches and who are opposing the plain teaching of God's word. And it's no wonder to my mind that Paul prays so often or asks of the church so often, would you please pray for me? But it's what a shepherd is supposed to do. John says in uh, the Lord says in John 10 that the hired hand runs away when the wolves come and he leaves the sheep to the wolves and they scatter the sheep the Lord says but the good shepherd he stands his ground and he runs into the midst of those snarling animals and he will not back away <laughs> even to his own harm the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep we read And Paul now is sending these pastors into great conflicts against men who refuse to be tamed by the Scripture. And it's as if Paul now is saying, Titus, these men are going to have to stand their ground and protect the sheep because many wolves are coming that will try to scatter them. And to arm these pastors, these new recruits, Paul now defines what the danger is all about he defines the empty talk and the deception he defines the leaven that these pastors need to stamp out of their churches and really the error and the empty talk on crete is one kind but in this passage it has two applications i want to look at one application today And then we'll look at another application next week as we take up that verse to the pure, all things are pure, a verse that's been hopelessly misinterpreted a thousand different ways. So first of all, what I want to look at today, or the first thing, the main thing, is an error that Paul describes as a form of legalism. And we see this in Paul's reference to the circumcision party. Now, the circumcision party was a sect in the uh, Christian church that was teaching that justification, this idea that I am reckoned righteous before God, comes through or is gained by observance to the law. And circumcision was the touchstone to this kind of pursuit. It was the tangible sign of their beliefs that outward performance leads to justification before God. It's really, by the way, just the mantra of the world. Live a reasonably good life to the best of your ability and you'll be assured to gain access to heaven. Or at least you'll be assured to have some form of peaceful death. Just do the best you can, man or woman, they say. And so the circumcision party felt that to be justified, I needed to obey. Now, arguably... Paul believes that this is not only a a misunderstanding of the new covenant, but it's also a misunderstanding of the old. Because according to Paul, the Jew was always a Jew inwardly. And circumcision, Paul says, was a matter of the heart. It was never a matter of the letter, Paul says in Romans 5. It was always a work of the Spirit. But that aside, this circumcision party was not unique to Crete. Paul argues against this circumcision in Galatians 5, and he says this, he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who would be made righteous by doing good deeds. You are severed from Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, being counted as perfectly righteous before God, accepted by God, has nothing to do With our obedience to the law, it does have everything to do with Christ's obedience to the law because our justification, our righteousness comes through faith in Christ. For as by one man's disobedience, Paul says, many became sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, Romans 5. Through Christ's death and through his resurrection, his obedience to the law, it becomes my obedience. That's the gospel. His obedience becomes my obedience to the law. Well then, what does that mean? Since Christ has done it all and he's given it to us, does Paul now have no regard for the law? Does this mean that believers are no longer morally and spiritually bound to obey the Ten Commandments? Paul has three words for these questions because he heard these questions many times. He says, by no means. (laughs) By no means is that true. Rather, we uphold the law. And by the end of Galatians 5, Paul explains this. He says that our freedom from The condemnation of the law is a freedom for the fulfillment of the law. Do not use your freedom, writes Paul in verse 13 of chapter 5, as an opportunity for the sinful flesh, but rather in your freedom, love one another because to love like this is to do what? To love like this is to fulfill the law. And then Paul quotes Leviticus 19, and he sums up what it means to obey the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, few theologians have so ferociously wrote against what it means to be justified by the law, as did Martin Luther. And yet Luther writes this. Luther, in that great commentary in Galatians, he says this, he says, the real doers of the law, Those who really obey the law, these are the true believers. They don't depose the Creator and deify the creature by seeking to be justified by the law, but being safely within the one whom the law cannot accuse. Being safely hidden with Christ, that great law keeper in that secret place, now empowered by the Spirit, These believers now truly observe the law by loving God and by loving their neighbor. You see, brothers and sisters, we are free from the law's condemnation. We are free from the law's wrath, and we are free for the law's commands. Free from condemnation, free from wrath free for the commands of the law. This is the gospel, and there is no other gospel in the Bible. The biblical gospel sets us free to be like Jesus, who was the only man on earth who ever perfectly loved and cherished and delighted in the law of God. And Jesus invites you and he invites me into his law keeping. Jesus invites us into his good works. He invites us into his holiness and to his righteousness. He invites us into his rapturous delight in his father's ways. In fact, this law-keeping, this loving God most of all, and loving our neighbor as ourself is the whole point of our salvation. (laughs) We were not saved to be justified, but we were justified in order to be made conformed to the image of God's dear Son. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared well beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works law-keeping, flow out of the new creation in Christ Jesus. Good works do not lead to the new creation in Christ Jesus. Christ first, then the works, empowered by God's grace. But this circumcision party, troubling Galatia, and now troubling Crete, sought to bypass Christ and to be about the law Without first being about Jesus. And you'll notice now as Paul spells it out how the peculiar result of this Christless morality goes in a certain direction. It invariably wends its way into these kinds of rills and these rivulets that have little to do with the weighty matter of God's law. That is, legalism turns us away from God's law. It doesn't turn us towards it. In verse 13, if you look at your Bibles in front of you, Paul characterizes the legalistic teaching like this. He says it's preoccupied with something, but it's not preoccupied with the commands of God. It's preoccupied with the commands of people and with Jewish myths. Precisely what Jesus said today in our reading of Matthew 15. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that the legalist, biblically speaking, is the one who is least concerned about God's law. Doesn't even occur to him. Doesn't matter to him. For you tithe dill and cumin, Jesus said, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, Faithfulness; These you ought to have done and not to have left the others undone. Jesus charges the Pharisees with hating the law of God. You look really good, you Pharisees. You look pretty sparkly on the outside, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and you Pharisees are full of lawlessness. You don't love my father's law. <laughs> it's not in your heart. I mean, isn't this what the Old Testament prophets have always done? Wasn't this their constant complaint? The problem with Israel was never, ever that they loved God's law too much. The problem was they didn't love it enough. Jeremiah thinks for a moment that the whole problem is demographic. He says, oh Lord, the problem is these are poor people. They don't know any better. Let me go to the lords and the ladies. Let me go to the high echelons of society. Let me go to those who know better. And I'll find people who love your law. And Jeremiah walks through the courts of all these important people. And then he finds something to his great dismay. And he says, oh Lord, they've all broken the yoke. They've all burst the bonds. They're all utterly treacherous. They've despised the way of the Lord. The men, they're like lusty stallions. They're all neighing after another man's wife. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord. The Lord says to Jeremiah, should they not fear me, Jeremiah? Should they not tremble before me, Jeremiah? Should I not punish them for these things? You see, the prophetic voice of Scripture has always come against those who despise the law of God. And the problem of the legalists is not that they love God's law too much, but that they don't love it at all. And the Pharisaical spirit is opposed to the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ, my brothers and sisters, is the spirit of Psalm 119. Oh, Father... How I love your law. Give me understanding and I will keep your law with my whole heart. Oh, Father, Christ says, I long to obey you. I say, Father, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God. And this yearning of Christ, this rejoicing in his father's rule, is the spirit of the true believer. It's what Jesus comes to give to us. The gospel is not just freedom from the condemnation of the law. It is freedom to live for the glory of God's ways. Brothers and sisters, the the law for the believer is home. The law of God for the believer is the place of safety and of light and of warmth and of sanity. I've been reading The Wind in the Willows to my boys at night, and it's such a delightful book. Kenneth Graham, if you've not read The Wind in the Willows, you've missed something very important. I've read it before, and I'm reading it again, and I'm so enchanted by this book that I can't wait to get into bed with my boys just to get back to that place. And just recently, we were in a, a place where Ratty and Mole, if you know those two characters, they got lost in the wildwood, and it was very dangerous and cold, it was snowing, they they didn't know where to go, they were hunkered down in a place, and they were freezing and they were wet, and all of a sudden they stumble across the home of Badger. And Badger lets them in and all of a sudden from all that darkness and cold and wildness it becomes all warmth and light and Badger gives them slippers and Badger gives them warm clothes and there's hams and onions and garlic hanging from the ceiling and cheeses and wine and a crackling fire and they sit back in chairs and they talk and they sleep and they talk and they laugh. All this loveliness and brothers and sisters, the law of God is that place. (laughs) The law of God is home for us. It's safe for us. It's a place that God has meant for us to be. Anywhere else is wild and cold and dark and deadly. And Christ comes to bring us back to the place of the law of God. The right place. The good place. The safe place. Jesus comes to bring us home. No longer harassed by the wild cold of lawlessness. But in the warmth of obedience to God. We sang today that song, Your Life, Your Death, Your Blood was shed for every moment. Every moment. And you know, it's tempting to think that the cross of Christ simply deals with all those sinful moments, every moment. And it's true. All dealt with, all failures gone, all rebellion gone. All disappointment towards God, gone, under the blood of Christ. But Christ died for every moment of your life. (laughs) The cross is there for every moment of your life so that you can now live to God and His ways and no longer sin, that it no longer has dominion over you, but you will live to God, His life, His death, for every moment of your life. Brothers and sisters, come home. Jesus invites you into this delightful, rapturous love for God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has made the way for us to delight in you, no longer living in forgetfulness of the living God, no longer living dispassionate lives, not caring about the living God, no longer, Lord, devoid of the fear of the Lord and the desire to please you. We thank you for the great Lord Jesus Christ, the great lawkeeper who delights to do your will, O God. And we pray, dear Father, let your Son live anew in us. Let the Lord Jesus Christ live his great law-keeping self. Through us we pray that we might love you, our Father, more than we love anything else. And that, Father, we might love our neighbor, even as we love ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.